Lots of nations impinge on the Arctic Circle. Even more try to use it strategically, like China. That's why for years the U.S. Coast Guard has been stepping up its patrols in the Arctic and why it convinced Congress to fund two new heavy icebreaking ships. At the recent Sea Air Space Conference, I got an update on Arctic activities from the Coast Guard's Vice Commandant, Admiral Steve Pullen. A lot of dynamic changes in the Arctic. It's a growing area of strategic competition. And if we want to protect America's sovereignty, ensure that the Arctic remains safe, open, stable, uh, we need to project Coast Guard presence in the region. And so that's what we're doing. We're, we're focused on building Coast Guard presence. And how many nations do you encounter up there? Well, a- any nation that has the opportunity to uh, flag a vessel and navigate freely, I mean, we'll encounter up there. But, I mean, within the Arctic Circle, uh, there are a certain finite number of nations that feel like this is our zone. There are many Arctic nations, right? There are eight Arctic nations. Eight, the United yeah. States happens to be one of them. But any commercial vessel can enjoy freedom of navigation under customary international law. And as we see ice recede, we see more navigation routes becoming open. So this is going to be a pathway for commercial commerce into the future. We have to be able to ensure safety, security, and environmental protection for our waters and our natural resources. But we also need to work collaboratively with partner nations to build a coalition of the willing who wants to see a free, stable, and open Arctic. Now, a few years ago, one of the issues was cruise ships were deciding, hey, this is a great way to, yeah. we can get through now. And I remember the Coast Guard was worried we're going to have to drag a cruise ship out of here or unload 2,000 people or something. What's going on in that particular domain of business? I'm glad you raised that. You know, this is a remote area. It's a difficult operating environment, but it's a growing area of what we call ecotourism. And so any mass rescue operation will be challenged. So what we're trying to do is work with partners to build a coalition of search and rescue capability in the region. But importantly, it's also the responsibility of the owner-operators of these cruise ships to make sure that they're prepared to operate in that environment, that they have the capability on board, medical standards, cold weather gear, things of that nature, so that they're prepared to handle what are their primary responsibilities to care for passengers. And do you find that that's tends to be the case. Do you have any inspection authority or any certification authority there? We do, and uh, we find that they're responsible operators. I I think they understand it just makes good business sense to have a a, a safe cruise ship and to keep passengers safe. You know, there, there, there is a coalition of folks who share our goal of making sure of safety, security, and environmental stewardship in the Arctic, and so we're we're relieved by that. Uh, we, in, in fact, I think there's a growing willingness on many Arctic countries to come together to talk about issues of mutual concern. I think of the Arctic Coast Guard Forum, where we bring Coast Guards together from those Arctic nations to talk about what we can do collaboratively to protect not only our own sovereign interest, but where we have uh, mutual goals. With the creation of new passages by warming, climate change, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. the need for icebreakers is still acute for the Coast Guard? Absolutely. Because you've got a couple of keels under construction. That's right. Right now, we only have one medium icebreaker that can only operate in the Arctic and one heavy icebreaker that can operate in both the high latitudes north and south. That's not sufficient. We need to have a Coast Guard that can maintain a persistent presence year-round in the Arctic and the Antarctic, and we do that by building Coast Guard icebreaking capability. And I should correct it and say it's not just Coast Guard icebreaking capability. These are national strategic assets. These are national icebreakers. So you have a couple, there are two under construction. Right now, Bollinger, Mississippi Shipyards, it was Halter. Bollinger recently acquired Halter. They have the contract to build three 
polar security cutters. These are going to be heavy icebreakers. We've got full funding for two. The FY24 budget has long lead time materials for the third polar security cutter, we're calling them heavy icebreakers. We're working with Bollinger to get to a more advanced, detailed design. We're working with them on certain shipbuilding techniques because this is, this is a difficult ship. Our offshore patrol cutter, which is 360 feet long, it's going to replace our medium endurance cutters, has about 17 different modules, if you will. The polar security cutter has 85. It's a much more complex ship. The thickness of the hull is orders of magnitude greater than you would put on a standard Coast Guard cutter. So there are issues of retooling and welding, the use of robotics, advanced techniques to build an icebreaker that you wouldn't normally have to use with other shipboard construction. So that's why it's taken a little bit longer than we had anticipated, uh, but I'm optimistic about the acquisition of the project. And what about the training and personnel requirements for greater Arctic operations, including the icebreaking when you have three or four you know, fully functional vessels? No, that's a great question. We're going to have to build the Coast Guard in terms of assets, but also in terms of people. So that's what we're committed to doing. Our focus is getting the ships through the construction process. At the t- same time, you know, we will build that cadre of Coast Guard ice sailors, if you will, We already have incredible capability in the Coast Guard. We've leveraged the icebreakers that we do have, and we'll continue to build on that. I have the training in place to to have that effective presence that I talked about. And when you construct these ships and design them, is care and feeding, for lack of a better word, of the ice crew, that must be an important consideration because that is not exactly lolling around in the Caribbean. No, absolutely. People are our number one priority. They're our greatest asset, and so... Not only do we have to give them the tools that they need to do the job that America asks of them, but we also have to do it in a way that provides crew habitability, connectivity, the safety, the security, and just the, the, the comforts that they need to do what, what's asked of them as well. So these ships incorporate that idea? They, they do. They're, they're going to be incredible ships. Uh, technology as well. You know, we have to leverage technology. Younger people today are used to dealing with technology. I came into an analog Coast Guard, you know, almost four decades, well, about four decades ago. You know ago. what a dial phone I, is. I, I, I do. I took, you know, I had to use IBM punch cards at the Coast Guard Academy. I mean, that's how dated I am. But, you know, you look at young people today, and they thirst for technology. And, and technology is going to make us more efficient, and it's going to make us safer. For me, leveraging technology buys down operational risk. And so that's what this polar security cutter is about. That's what all our Coast Guard new construction is about. It's about giving technology to the people that we're asking to do the hard job of the nation. And getting back to operations in the polar area, Russia must be all over the place up there now. Yeah, they, they have more icebreakers than we do, many more. Some are ice strength and some are heavy icebreakers. Uh, the fact of the matter is presence matters. And in order to be present, you've got to have the capability to be present. The only way to do that is with new icebreakers. And when we have presence in the area, we not only protect the United States' interest, but we ensure a rules-based order in the Arctic. That's the only way you can do it. You know, you, you blunt malign activity, but you also, by maintaining presence, reinforce that rules-based order. Maritime governance, we call it. You make sure that this is an area that, that has sound and good maritime governance. Because Russia has been snatching Americans off the street in Russia and in the air war the non-air war happening in that region of the world, they are crossing our planes, coming close, our drones, strikes, this kind of thing. There's been a lot of as close to conflict as you can without having it in the Arctic or anywhere in the Coast Guard. Do their, their cutters 
cut your bow across, that type of thing, and cross well, your T or anything like that? Well, look, our, our focus is on good maritime governance and making sure that we can detect, deter, and defeat malign action, whatever flavor or color that is. And we think we do that by maintaining a presence in the region and a sustained presence in the region, not just episodic, but sustained. And if an icebreaker cuts a way through, can a regular cutter then go in there? I mean, can you have other presence that is persistent that's not an icebreaker in the Arctic? Well, we've got to be very cautious about using cutters that weren't constructed for an ice environment. So, you know, we'll... They could get in, but they couldn't get out or something. Well, you know, we would look at what maybe future force packaging looks like. But uh, right now our focus is to build a capability for a cutter that can have sustained presence. That starts with a polar security cutter, and then we're also talking about what an Arctic security cutter would look like, which would be a replacement to that medium cutter that we currently have in inventory. You know, what do we need Mm -hmm. to maintain both a persistent presence in the north high latitude and also in the uh, Antarctic? And by the way, are the polar cutters capable of launching aircraft? Are there copters on them? Yeah, yeah, exactly. They'll have a flight deck. Uh, It's important that we have that to improve maritime demand awareness, the logistical issues. It helps with the science mission sometimes when we deploy up there with the National Science Foundation. And and it's just an added margin of safety for our crews. So absolutely. And you conduct exercises and operations and with the other Arctic nations that, that care about this. Well, we do now. We do now. Right. With our other cutters that aren't ice-strengthened or don't have ice-breaking capability, we'll do it during the summer months when certain waters are ice-free. I think of, you know, off uh, the North Atlantic. We work with the Canadians. We work with uh, Denmark. We work with the U.K. and France. And we do some similar exercises with Canada in the Pacific Arctic area off Alaska. And we'll continue to do that. We'll con- I think it's important for us to build interoperability with partners and allies that share our mutual goals because securing the entire Arctic is something that the United States can't do alone, right? Our, our focus, yes, is in part on protecting our own sovereignty, our sovereign rights, and our national interest. But we have a continuity of interest across the Arctic, not just off Alaska. And the best way to build up that governance is by doing it with like-minded partners and allies. Who else has ice cutters besides the United States and Russia up there? Well, you know, China's building icebreakers, and they are not an Arctic nation. But Finland and and Norway. Right, right. There are a lot of of the Arctic partners that have some level of icebreaking capability. What we need to do is is we need to build capability for the United States. You know, you, you mentioned Russia before. We're lagging behind. You know, we need to accelerate, and that's why we're fully committed to the polar security cutter. And and I will say, we are so grateful to the administration and Congress uh, for their support for the polar security cutter. We haven't built a heavy icebreaker in this country since the early 70s. And I'm not sure that I ever envisioned during my tenure in the service we would be building other heavy icebreakers. So I'm just really excited about this acquisition, about this project. I've talked with Bollinger. They're excited about it as well. So... Again, I remain optimistic about the future. And it'll have Wi-Fi. <laughs> it'll have a lot of bells and whistles. It'll have great technology. And uh, we're going to do as much as we can to enable those great crew members on board to do Coast Guard missions up there and national missions, not just Coast Guard missions, national missions. Admiral Steve Poulin is vice commandant of the Coast Guard. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive wherever you go. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show 
the nation, how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbored no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today.
That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.